Hello, I am the host of Shifting Culture, Joshua Johnson. I just want to come on before the episode and tell you all thank you for listening. Did you know that big things are coming for Shifting Culture and you can be a part of it? We have just launched a Patreon. When you become a monthly patron to the show, you will get our episode ad-free, get early access to episodes, be able to download episode guides, and get bonus shows. Go to patreon.com slash shifting culture to support all that we are doing. Your support means that we can continue to help the body of Christ look more like Jesus. Again, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture. Thank you so much. Now, on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Shifting Culture Podcast, in which we have conversations about the culture we create and the impact we can make. I'm your host, Joshua Johnson. We long to see the body of Christ look like Jesus. Go to ShiftingCulturePodcast.com to interact or donate. And don't forget to hit the follow button on your favorite podcast app to be notified when new episodes come out each Tuesday. And right now, go and leave a rating and review. That helps us reach new listeners. So thank you for doing that. I really appreciate it. Previous guests on the show have included Jesse Cruikshank, Talisi Guerra, and Jamie Winship. You could go back, listen to those episodes, and more. But today's guest is Dr. Jim Wilder. Jim has been training leaders and counselors for over 30 years on five continents. He is the author of 19 books and has extensive clinical counseling experience. He is the chief neurotheologian of Life Model Works, a nonprofit working at the intersection of theology and brain science. Jim and I have a great conversation diving into his latest book, Escaping Enemy Mode. I'm excited for you all to hear this one. I don't think that there is a more important topic than escaping enemy mode at this moment. There's a lot of us versus them out there. So let's figure it out. How do we escape enemy mode? Well, here is my conversation with Dr. Jim Wilder, and you can figure out how to do just that. Welcome, Jim. Thanks for coming to the podcast. I'm excited to talk to you. Great to be with you, Joshua. Yeah, I'd love to just start off uh, a little bit with your story of how you got engaged uh, with psychology and the brain and following Jesus together and why you've decided that that's important for your relationship uh, and our relationship with God. Yeah, well, my parents were missionaries and I grew up in South America, up in the Andes. Um, So I was immersed in Christianity all the way from my childhood. But um, it was sort of uh, believing the right things, but I wasn't sure God was too much an active presence, uh, certainly not going to interact with me. And so um, in my young adult life, I actually experienced God answering prayer, sort Mm -hmm. of what I would call miraculous kind of way, like I prayed right now and something happened and Mm. that really amazed me. And what he actually had done was to uh, heal some post-traumatic stress in somebody that I was happened to pray for. I just walked into them. Um, You know, wasn't expecting a prayer encounter or anything like that. So then I started studying uh, psychology to find out, you know, what I had just witnessed 
but always looking at how does God intervene with that. And oddly enough, um, eventually ended up working with Dallas Willard's wife. Hmm. And she was working on the spiritual disciplines with Dallas and things like that. And we find that for some people, they were working pretty well and for others, they weren't. So again, looking at what the difference was and trauma showed up in the middle of that and uh, trauma, you know, essentially means your brain isn't running right. So all of a hmm. sudden we have, you know, what does the brain got to do with spiritual life as becoming sort of the focal question? Yeah. And that's how I got into it. Mm. I And, you know, it looks like uh, if your brain isn't running right, if you're not uh, operating properly, uh, we're actually having some broken relationships or broken relationships with each other and broken relationships with God. So when you entered into that trauma uh, with people, what are the ways that you felt you saw God heal, starting to heal that brain in our relational circuits? Well, the um, original approach I took was more of the psychological approach because um, that's what I got trained in in school when I got my PhD, and that is to get people to, uh, uh, you know, remember or get in touch with the feelings of the trauma. So you're all deep into that, and then we would uh, go looking for God to see where He was, and that was rather difficult and painful. Um, and then, uh, again, through Jane Willard, she suggests, well, why don't we go look for God first and get mm. the brain? Uh, she didn't say it this way, but, uh, get the brain in its most stable configuration where it's running in a good relational way and then ask God to guide us through the trauma. So instead of getting into the brain's most upset and dysfunctional state, and then trying to find God, why not find God and let him guide you through? And all of a sudden, things seem to be uh, resolving in about a sixth of the amount of time with a lot of less uh, difficulty for everybody all around. So, again, could it be that our attachment with God is sort of central to who we are and how we handle tough things? And the more we looked at the evidence, the more that became compelling. Yeah, if you're connected with God, you can get through a lot of hard things. Hmm. In fact, Jesus says something, or says of Jesus in Hebrews 12, that, you know, he turned his eyes towards heaven um, while during the crucifixion, and that that's how we should handle our problems too. So if we, and you get Stephen getting stoned and killed and the heaven opens up. So shouldn't we connect with God and his perspective and presence at, at those hard times? Um, and then we can face the problems um, more straight on and with less yeah. brain problems. So uh, the brain has uh, got to learn to do these things. So in some ways, it's the weakest link in the whole thing um, and requires the most attention for that reason. Yeah. And so if, you know, our attachment to God is is crucial to our way of living and, and actually being stable, um, a lot of times when we're practicing spiritual disciplines and we're making space and room so that we can attach to God, a lot of times we often don't realize how to interact with God or how to hear God or how to be with God. What are some ways as we're entering into those things that we could actually uh, recognize God and start to attach to him? 
Well, there's two sort of contour and counterintuitive things about how the brain does that that would be fun to look at at this point. Uh, the first is that the part of your brain that is most able to uh, um, connect with God, which would be the uh, uh, prefrontal cortex, especially the, the, which is the very, very top of the brain, uh, it's the part of your brain that's most connected to your body. So one of the things that we've discovered is that if people aren't connected with their bodies, uh, they don't connect very well with God. And you'd think it might go the other way around. Hmm. So that you some, in fact, most spiritual experiences as they're studied uh, in psychology, you know, so they go in this spiritual experience. It's a sort of a depersonalization experience. It's a place where you're not attached with your body, you feel one with the universe and stuff like that. That's really not where spiritual life with God is focused. Hmm. Uh, our God is a very connected God, and he's actually a God of creation. And so he, you know, he lives an embodied kind of um, experience, you know. And so when we connect with our bodies, which usually means we have to take a few deep breaths and notice how, how we are, and, you know, those kind of feelings inside, uh, that is when we're most present to God, when we're in our, uh, in our bodies in a restful state. And the best way to get there is through being thankful. Hmm. So, you know, it can be as simple as being thankful for a little coffee um, or, uh, you know, being thankful for a, a good relationship or being thankful. The best things are being thankful for moments when God taught or touched our lives. And then just feel what that's like inside. But the other counterintuitive thing is that uh, thoughts that come from God seem to uh, be first detected by the cingulate cortex, which is a mutual mind state. And in that mutual mind state, we don't know at first if it's our thought or someone else's thought most of the time. Occasionally, it's so surprising that we don't even understand it. And then we go like, oh, um, that must be somebody else's thought. But for for most people, Christians and pastors in particular, uh, they've already learned a little bit of thinking with God. And so there's always this uncertainty. Was it me thinking or was that a God thought? And uh, the answer is that since the mind of Christ is supposed to be in us, when it's at its best, you can't tell the difference. Hmm. We're thinking the same thing that God is thinking. Yeah. Uh, and then when you reflect on, on it, you realize, oh, yeah, this matches with all the other things I know about God as well from Scripture and experience and things like that. So being in our bodies and having uh, thoughts come into our minds that we're not sure at first whether they're God's thoughts or not are the two counterintuitive things about uh, listening to God in a, in a relational kind of way where yeah. we're actually learning to think with him in real time. Wow. Uh, that's fascinating. And, you know, as you, you wrote in your, in your book, uh, Escaping Enemy Mode, that you wrote with uh, Ray Woolridge, the general, um, mm-hmm. one of the things as we're thinking about actually i think enemy mode stops us from from engaging uh those are these god thoughts or these are thoughts it actually i think probably just keeps us engaged in ourself 
um, and seeing others as enemy. And I, I think it's really important that we figure out how to escape enemy mode. So just uh, let us know a little bit, what is enemy mode um, and why did you, you write this book? Um, well, yes. So enemy mode is actually that state of mind in which you anticipate somebody else isn't on your side. So, uh, you know, if you want to, uh, uh, get vaccines and the other person says something that's anti-vaccine, it's immediately the feeling inside. They're not on my side. Or if yeah. I think I should, uh, um, have, um, you know, loud music for worship. And you think that I should have quiet music for worship. Uh, immediately the mind says, oh, well, you're not on my side. And it goes into an antagonistic position that's an enemy mode. Rather than uh, seeking to understand uh, the other person, we're trying to now uh, convince them that we're right or, uh, in essence, trying to make them lose. And that's yeah. the state of enemy mind where uh, we want other people to lose. Shows up kind of three ways. First is, I don't even want to connect with you. Just go away. Don't bother me. That's sort of... <laughs> simple enemy mode. And then there's stupid enemy mode where you get all energized about it and start saying and doing stupid things. Uh, and that's something that people often notice. We call it losing it. Uh, and then there's the scariest one, which is intelligent enemy mode. And we usually see that in politics and in wars and places like that. And that's where I'm actually using all of my intelligence to figure out how to make you lose. Hmm. Uh, and uh, in any, any of those three, there's a lack of compassion, yeah, a lack of connection to the other person. And so um, escaping enemy mode is to go back to our sense of compassion and connection with the other person. And, uh, you know, for most of us, the only reason to do that with really annoying people is that a we live with them or b god must love them somehow and uh, so you know i have to overcome this uh you know even though i don't feel motivated because god seems to be motivated and i want to be like him yeah so how do we uh, you know a lot of times i think uh when we enter into enemy mode uh as you you said it's it it happens pretty easily and naturally. And mm -hmm. I think that comes generationally uh, down the line that we're actually uh, entering into that constantly. And we've seen throughout history that we've entered into enemy mode. So mm -hmm. how do we recognize that we're in enemy mode? Uh, well, the number one thing is um, we don't feel like we want to share what the other person is feeling. Hmm. Uh, so we're not connected with them. We're not, um, you know, our, our compassion has suddenly dropped. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, often it's because the other person is not being who God created them to be, hmm. you know? Yeah. And so you can't really connect with someone's sinful self and want to be with that. Right. Yep. Unless you really want to do whatever the sin they're doing. I mean, you can do it that way, but <laughs> most of us that have been around a while, we are like, we're not so much into that. But, uh, you know, if we want to connect with who God is creating them to be, mm. that gives us that, uh, you know, that way to draw out you know, all the stuff that Philippians talks about, you know, in, in the other person mm. to encourage them 
um, to become who God wants them to be. And the more annoying they, they are, the more we want them to become who God wants them to be, mm. you know, whether it's our teenage children or, um, you know, a really annoying parishioner or often our spouse, mm. you know, that mm -hmm. it's, it's those moments that we're not being a new creation yeah. that uh, are particularly annoying. And if we go into enemy mode, now we decide we're just going to make you lose. Uh, and I'm going to win as opposed to, I'm going to, uh, be able to draw out of you who God wants you to be. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think that's really important that we start to recognize that there's something else. There's some compassion, uh, towards another person when we're, and then we have some self-awareness so that mm -hmm. we could start to engage with the other. Um, oftentimes we're on the other side though, and we are trying to interact with someone that is in enemy mode. How do mm -hmm. we help others recognize it in a way that's not, uh, won't go off the rails and won't delve into, uh, into a fight? Mm -hmm. Well, here's the interesting thing about being in enemy mode. While you're in enemy mode, your brain is actually in a configuration where it cannot tell if other people are out of enemy mode. Hmm. See, you, it's, um, it's a narrowing of the brain's focus. Yeah. So if I close my eyes, I can't tell if your eyes are open or not. Hmm. Right. Yeah. So what often happens when you go to help somebody in enemy mode, they have their brain in enemy mode. They can't tell that you're actually trying to help them. They assume hmm. you're trying to attack. You're trying to make them lose. Yeah. And of course you're trying to get them out of that position. So it uh, feels like, well, you're not agreeing with me. Hmm. So, you, you know, it's your chances of, you know, having someone want to scratch your eyeballs out, uh, is really high when you're trying to help <laughs> someone in enemy mode, you know? <laughs> so, uh, the first thing is enemy mode is extremely contagious. Yeah. So, um, you have to be good at keeping yourself out of it. So, and I think that's where most people, uh, get into trouble instead of learning how to be good at keeping themselves out of it. Uh, they try to be, get better at getting the other person out of it first, hmm. but uh, you know, your chances of dropping into enemy mode are, are way too high. When I was a lifeguard and I was taking lifeguard lessons, uh, they said, you know, every time you go to uh, rescue someone, if you go swimming out there, that person is going to try to climb up on top of you and they'll drown you mm. unless you dive down before you get to them and push them up. And then they won't want to drown you because they'll feel like you're the one that's pushing them up. Mm. And so uh, the actual reason why most people go into enemy mode is because it feels like their status has been challenged. Yeah brain is extremely sensitive to status. So if I try to raise your status, um, and the best status to raise is that you're a child of God and we're going mm -hmm. to act like mm -hmm. children of God, uh, you'll feel me pushing you out of enemy mode in the sense that I'm lifting who you are. If mm -hmm. I try to argue with you and show you're wrong, it'll feel like you're trying to drown me more by pushing my status down mm -hmm. and telling me how wrong I am. Uh, and then I will, you know, I lock into enemy mode even more fiercely. Hmm. But uh, for many of us to push somebody else's status up as a child of God means we have to be connected with God at that point ourselves. 
Right. Unless we're feeling like a child of God right at that moment, uh, we're just going to feel like we're getting attacked by this other person and, you know, we yeah. can't let them do that. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I've been, been thinking about a lot lately is that identity as child of God uh, mm-hmm. is is crucial to everything that, that we do, that we could actually now love one another well. Um, and we could enter into these conversations, these relationships. Uh, for me, I, I lived uh, many years in the Middle East. I worked uh, with Syrian refugees, with Muslims, and, and introduced them to Jesus. And for me, mm-hmm. it wasn't arguing about Jesus that actually got anybody interested in him. It was mm-hmm. sharing a new hope and a new identity uh, in Jesus. So how do we, one of the things you said in, in your book is that escaping enemy mode requires a large amount of compassion, attachment, and identity. So how do we get that identity uh, in us and in others uh, in a way where they actually can realize their true identity? I think that your Middle Eastern experience is going to help you with the answer to this a lot better than most American listeners are going to be able to. And it all uh, circles around the apoptotic period at age 14, Hmm. which, uh, you know, you might not have been thinking about or the (laughs) listener might not have. But up until age 14, your brain is trying to grow an individual identity. Who am I as an individual? What's all about me? And that's really where most Westerners stay the rest of their lives uh, consciously. But their brain at age 14 switches so that my survival is no longer as important as the survival of my people. And my people become the ones that can tell me who I am. Hmm. Up until then, any individual could tell you who you were. Uh, you know, usually your parents, family, it could be a teacher, a lot of things like that. Mm-hmm. But you notice this peer group thing that takes off around age 14. Yeah. Well, that's a brain in search of a group identity. Mm-hmm. And now your group identity has the right to tell you who you are, how you work, uh, how you should react to things, uh, what you're like, you know, what you should enjoy and not enjoy. And, mm-hmm. you know, teens do a pretty nasty job on each other a lot of times right then yeah okay so but now your brain is not going to listen to individuals anymore Mm. they're it's looking for a group who are the people that can tell me what who am i and what am i like and you realize that one of the huge problems for muslims becoming christians is the shift of their identity group you have to be willing to you know essentially give up your identity group because of the way the the situation is polarized. And so now you move over to Christians and you say, well, who are your identity group in the the West? Mm -hmm. And suddenly it's not an attachment group. These aren't the people that share life with you. These aren't the people, you know, they get, they share some beliefs in common, but that beliefs are way, 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 way down the uh, list of important things for the brain. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you're, we're, our brain is changed much more by who we love than what we believe. And so if our people say to us, you know, you know, we're the kind of people that love our enemies, which by the way, you have to do if you become a Christian in a Muslim country, right? Yep. yep. You either do that or you fight everybody. Yep. And so uh, again, when it's not easy to do, it's a big switch for the brain. It's not how we're used to thinking, but if that's how my people do it, then I'm, you know, I need to learn how and, 
uh, when I'm losing it mm. and not feeling that my people come around to go, yeah, I know that's really upsetting and it's really hard when, you know, you get treated badly, but we're people who love our enemies because we see in them something that God, someone that God loves. And I'm sure you've seen that in, in practice. You, you might even have some good stories about that. Yeah. Yep. And I, I, yeah. And I think that, you know, one of the things that we talk uh, a lot about, I think with, in a Middle Eastern context, they're very, uh, it's a very communal culture. And I think, you know, we're a very mm -hmm. individualistic culture in the, in the West where we think individually. And I think maybe that individualism and thinking through a, what we what we know what we believe is the highest form of discipleship to Jesus in the West um, and not about who we're attached to communally. I wonder why if that's a reason why people are saying, hey, there must be something else other than this faith that I've been brought up in um, because we're we're working on that aspect alone. Yeah, we're certainly not doing much to create a people. Uh, we uh, we create an attendance, we mm -hmm. create an event, but we don't really focus much on on being a people. Yeah, um, it's not really you know, built into the culture. And so, be one of the odd things about making disciples is when Jesus gives the great commission. Uh, he the way it's worded in the Greek is make disciples of yours. Hmm teaching them to do everything that I have commanded. Hmm. But we try to make disciples of Jesus, hmm. teaching them to do everything he commanded. But that relational element where someone's actually learning from me how to do it yeah. uh, doesn't, doesn't really come across uh, very well in the English and not in our, our, in our culture either. And so, uh, you know, when I've heard from uh, people, um, Muslims who became Christians, many of them are puzzled uh, that the Christians suddenly lost interest in them once hmm. they'd made the decision and went on to yeah. say, okay, now I got to go find somebody else when they thought the person was inviting them into a relationship with them. Yeah. Um, and uh, again, that's, you know, we got the beliefs now. Uh, yep. And so let me go looking for somebody else. It permeates the, the Western church. Mm -hmm. uh, and therefore, it's hard for us to even imagine that love might mean attachment. Wow. And yet I, if I look back at the Hebrew words in particular and the way that they are used in the Greek, which is kind of stretching Greek because uh, it wasn't quite such a relational language, uh, it looks to me like it's talking about a real attachment to other people. Yeah. Uh, and that's the essence of salvation. We formed a new attachment with a new uh, God, and a new people who have the right to tell us who we're going to be now. Hmm. And our brain is actually looking for that. In the West, we wander around trying to find it without knowing what we're looking for. Hmm. So if we're wandering around not knowing what we're looking for, and we're trying to, to find that, and we're also, because we're in, in enemy mode so easily, we're mm -hmm. having uh, an us versus them mentality. How do we find and us, a community, when we're constantly in enemy mode? Uh, well, the nice thing about enemy mode is no one really likes it. <laughs> uh, the, the brain is already predisposed to wish you weren't there. Yeah. You know, and so if we actually begin to experience 
uh, joy and peace, which is what the brain would rather have. Yeah. We are drawn to all those who are, seem glad to be with us. That's joy. And, uh, who let us rest when we need to, and that's the peace part of it. And, uh, and so if we have a fellowship in which we are glad to be with each other, yeah. um, and we let each other rest in that, uh, people are drawn into that. That's where small groups become very, very effective. Hmm. Uh, the problem is as soon as, uh, I get confused about who I am. Yeah. Most Westerners think the thing to do is to talk through all of my feelings of being upset until you understand just how upset I am. And since we want compassion, we want the, the other person to be as upset about it as we are. Mm, so yeah. rather than getting together to find out how God sees it and share peace and joy, we get mm. together to share our upset and see if we can't all support each other in that. And yeah. those upset all push us in the enemy mode direction. Yeah. Whereas seeing other people as God sees them doesn't take away the upset, but it does take away the agitation. Be like, oh, mm. of course they're upsetting me. They're not who God wants them to be. So let me forgive them, which, yeah. you know, uh, Jesus was pretty clear about that. God's going to forgive us uh, using the same standard we use to forgive others. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, they know not what they're doing seems to be pretty big on Jesus standards of, you know, why he would forgive people. And most people have no idea who they are. Now, preaching can help. You can give people the ideas. Here's what we're like. But most people then try to say, okay, now how am I going to force that? Which yeah. Dallas called sin management instead <laughs> of how am I going to feel about this the way that God does? Well, to do that, I'm going to have to get closer to him. And again, these are the spiritual formation things that make room for that. Uh, but then start noticing the thoughts that God puts in our mind and, and at least wonder about them. Like, how could God be thinking that I'm so mm. mad. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd love to get a little bit into the science behind this, but before we, we enter into to that, one of the questions that, that I have is how does this work? Uh, when it comes uh, with power dynamics, when s there are people that have more power in a relationship, um, when they're, they're in enemy mode, say, we have less power and we're trying to figure out a way forward, uh, but it looks like it's just the leader wanting to do what they want to do to win. One of the interesting parts of the... Um social psychology research indicates that anytime you give people more power, even if you warn them about the effect, they become more sociopathic. Hmm. Uh, so when people have power, the brain concludes, I don't have to care about how you feel. I hmm. can make you do it. And so the real problem with power, uh, and we think empowerment is going to be the solution, or if we got more power, now we could fight back or whatever. Uh, you notice how far that's getting us with the conflicts in the in yeah. our country that involve trying to empower people. Um, you know, you get rid of a colonial government, and the government that takes over is likely to be equally sociopathic. You know, different yeah. preferences, but just as uncaring. So uh, this is the human problem, and. Um, you know, a lot of it has to do with the way that we choose leaders. 
So since we choose leaders primarily in the West so that they get results yep. and make us look good, those are the two things you have to do. You have to get results and make us look good. Yeah. Um, uh, and if you fail on either of those, sooner or later we'll replace you with somebody else. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that favors narcissistic, sociopathic kinds of leadership. Uh, and they know that the, you know, their group wants them to succeed and make them look good. So how do you succeed? Well, the best way is to convince other people that we have enemies and we're mm-hmm. going to beat them. Yeah. So, um, that gives, as long as we're doing that with leadership, mm-hmm. we're going to keep selecting leaders, uh, whether it's in church or politics or, uh, business that operate in enemy mode mm. a large part of the time in order to make us all win and make them all lose. Yeah. So how do you, how do you get around that? Well, now the question is, uh, are we going to, uh, tell even our leaders that we're not the kind of people that are out to make other people lose. We're the, uh, uh, the kind of people who are out to bring out in others, the person that God had in mind for them, their best self, the self that probably has never existed. So mm-hmm. when we're talking about bringing out a best self, we're not talking about the best human self. We're yeah. talking about what, uh, God, uh, spoke through St. Paul. He said, you know, the, the good work, the good works that God prepared ahead of time that you should walk in them. Ephesians two ten. Uh, that's being your, the self, that's who God was made, made you to be. Hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, we're not even looking at that. And it used to be maybe a hundred years ago, the church had a lot more songs that sang to each other about who we are. Hmm. Um, and you know how we get along and how we relate to each other most of those songs are are gone now that they're not in fashion yeah. uh, so we have songs singing to god about who he is hmm. uh, which is good also but with the voice that says and now given that god is good what are his children like yeah uh, that message is is kind of been deleted uh, or at least uh, greatly um decreased when it comes to handling the real problems of life. So, um, the, the fun thing we've noticed is that when a community decides we're not the kind of people that put up with self-justification, we're not the kind of people that will, um, make ourselves look good. We're the kind of people who, um, bring out in each other what God wants to grow there. Uh, the leader doesn't have the backing. Uh, if you got a narciss- narcissistic sociopathic leader, yeah. he doesn't have the backing to pull off his, his plan anymore. Hmm. Uh, you know, he can't get the votes you might say. Yeah. And, uh, in the cases where the people have done the changing, hmm. uh, most of the time the pastor has given in and I'm talking about pastors leaders. Yeah. Cause that's what I'm talking about now. I'm not really so much involved in politics, but within church communities, the pastor has gone, Oh, uh, the people are really looking for something else. And it's a few of them have left. So, well, I'm going to yeah. go and find a, a bigger pond to fish. Um, but many cases they've made the change. And when the pastor has been the one to say, I'm going to teach you, um, what our identity is like, hmm. the people are amazed 
and they do go ahead, uh, they keep attacking him. But a pastor who says, you know, I'm going to stay close to God, and I knew what people would do if I started uh, this message is going to come attacking me, so I'm going to use that as an experience they can have to see how I love my enemies. Mm. Um, that is a more mixed result. Yeah. Because there's often a power group in church that wants to throw them out and they'll do it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, again, we've seen some successes from that point of view. So it's a funny yeah. thing, but the, the congregation again, seems to have a larger influence on how it's going to turn out than the pastor alone. Mm. And of course, if the, we're looking for a group identity within the brain, that would, yeah. that would be true. Yeah. Uh, so, but you were asking this as a preview to a, another question. So let's go back to what you <laughs> wanted to ask. Uh, yeah. Well, I was, uh, I think you, you, you answered uh, my question well, but you know, I'd love to get into the science uh, and how you discover the science behind uh, enemy mode. Well, yes. Uh, first of all, uh, I read thousands and thousands and thousands <laughs> of pages, um, but God had set me up for this a long, uh, a long time ago uh, in that when I was even in graduate school and, and the years afterwards, I would apply for uh, positions that I thought would uh, suit me for being a like a counselor for missionaries and pastors, which is what I was thinking to be. Yeah. But I kept getting assigned to these brain uh, study units and, and neurological assessment and neurological damage. And, you know, I'm writing all these reports on people who uh, were riding their motorcycle too fast and ran into a tree or uh, to, got a concussion uh, from a bomb explosion in the war, you know, veterans and, and these kind of things or had a stroke and oh. thinking to myself, what a waste of my, uh, my talent, you know, yeah. but I got very intimately, uh, uh, involved with the brain before there was even brain scans. Um, and I thought all of that was pretty much a waste of time. So then, uh, we're working uh, with all these trauma victims and there's some of them that all of the experts we were working with just said, you know, they're beyond the range of help. So nothing can be done for people with that much damage. And um, at that point, um, a brochure arrived in my office from a conference that nobody, I didn't know anybody and I didn't like the organization. And so <laughs> I went, throw it in the trash and I tried throwing it three times and it wouldn't leave my hand. Hmm. And so I finally looked at it and it's sort of like God saying, said to me, you know, someone needs to go there. Well, that was the last thing I wanted to do. So we got some intern that had no excuse that weekend to go to the conference. And he came out back with big eyes and a whole set of cassette tapes. I don't know if you remember cassette mm -hmm. tapes. Yeah. The entire yeah. conference said, this guy wrote, read his the manuscript to his book. It was very, very boring, <laughs> but I didn't understand much except that he explained all the science behind the problems that we're having mm. and it matched with the maturity and development things that we're talking about. So I was finally forced to listen to the, the lecture about the brain and how it develops based on relationship. Mm. And suddenly things began to fall in place. And it turns out that the people no one could help were the people that did not have a working relational attachment to another human being. Hmm. Often they were 
raised by people who had severe psychiatric disorders. Uh, some of them were criminally insane. They were in the, in the prison for the criminally insane in, in the area. And uh, they had never been able to form a working attachment with other people. They could not figure out how God worked. Yeah. Because their map for figuring out relationships was totally screwed up. I mean, they're expecting yeah. all the wrong things and not looking for the right things. So uh, suddenly, how the brain learned that and where it learned it uh, became very, very interesting to me. So I, you know, basically said, well, let's try and see if we can, we can repair their bad learning. Yeah. Will that make a difference to their being able to uh, connect with God? And basically mm -hmm. these are the brain's relational circuits. Yeah. And we discovered while the relational circuits were on and running, they were actually able to understand what God was saying. They could read scripture and like, oh, well, that made sense. Hmm. Uh, they could see, oh, maybe I'm someone very different from who I've always thought I was. Because obviously people who can't understand relationships uh, are very annoying to everybody else, right? Yeah. Yeah. So when we began to see these changes, we went to the more subtle change. Does it turn out that when Christians are trying to connect with God, if they do so just on the basis of ideas and not if, not on the basis of their their brain actually being relational at the moment. That is, I'm I'm learning to, I'm talking, I'm reading about someone who loves me and cares about me and sees me and knows me and is going to help me know myself better. Uh, all of a sudden we see, no, the change is happening for the people who have an attachment to God. Yeah. And how did they learn that? Well, some of them learned it directly from God. When they asked him, God formed a relationship with them. And from that, they learned how to understand people. <laughs> uh, and then there's people who formed an attachment with God's people. And from that, they learned out how to understand God. And it seems like God worked it both ways. Wow. But in both cases, the brain had to learn and practice with other people. <laughs> so... Uh, as St. John says, you know, how can you say that you're attached to God who you haven't seen if you're not attached to uh, his children who you have seen? Mm. And so developing these relationships with others strengthened what the brain was learning. Mm. Uh, and then it could better stay connected with God as things got harder and harder. And by harder and harder, we mean more and more upsetting. Yeah. So, uh, you know, watching that, I think, you know, maybe God meant all of this to work together. Mm. So if you said that, you know, our brains actually have to to practice these this relationship, these for these yeah. relational circuits to work well so that we could form a healthy attachment to God and start to, to walk through these things. How do we mm -hmm. then enter into that practice? Well, Certainly, it would help greatly if we were part of a people who said we practice this with each other. Mm -hmm. And that is what I find generally missing in the West. Yeah. Uh, you know, we are people who believe the right things, not necessarily people who practice it with each other, particularly when we're not good at it. Yeah. So that's what practice is. If you want to, you know, teach a soccer team to yep. play, you start with little kids who are terrible at it. Yep. And you help them get better. And so this idea that we would practice with each other is just not part of our, our Christian culture. Yeah. Um, 
you know, uh, so that I think is a fundamental change. We have to become a people who say, you know, we're going to practice how to stay relational with each other, uh, which means we're going to get better and better at this when the more and more upsetting things in our lives come up. Mm-hmm. And what I hear from the larger churches that run uh, small groups is that when these upsetting things start coming up, that's when the small groups start breaking apart. Right. Uh, so, you know, two years, we'll all act nice with each other. But when we start getting into trouble, all of a sudden, we have no idea what to do with this now. Hmm. Uh, it's so missing from our, our mindset yeah. that we don't even look at that as an, uh, as an opportunity. So again, but the brain doesn't usually want to start there. Yep. So it wants to start by building joy and peace. And so how do we build joy to be with each other is a fundamental thing. And that grows around gratitude. So we want to be grateful. You know, how am I yeah. going to be grateful uh, to Joshua Johnson, you know, yeah. is going to be practical yeah. or my brain is not going to look at with joy when, when I see your name, you know, yep. and mm-hmm. we need to do that with uh, all the people that God's put in our lives. Mm. Yeah. And so if we, we set something up where, where we're moving our communities through this baby relationship of relational attachment and practice all the way through into maturity. Um, what are some steps, as you said, once we hit the hard things, we usually break apart. So what are some mm-hmm. things to actually help us to navigate that and go through it to the other side so we stay together? Um, well, for people who like to have a more systematic look at that. Uh, in the book Renovated, uh, I have an appendix in there of the 12 characteristics of a, a strong attachment. And mm-hmm. how would you build them if you took a month every year to build one of the 12? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the first thing is attachments uh, build around the people who feed you. Mm-hmm. So the first sin was letting Satan feed us. Um, and, uh, we have taken the, the feasts out of pretty much out of the Christian life. Um, uh, we have the, the meal of the table of the Lord. And so we make some attachment to the Lord, but the churches that do it better in terms of forming, uh, relationships with each other, at least have potlucks or something. And. Uh, but how do we actually become people who are fed by God and by each other? And mm-hmm. then what Jesus says is that, you know, this uh, natural food is just the start of feeding each other, right? Yeah. So there's, you know, that's the first thing. We, if we were to practice that, uh, the second thing is uh, attachments are unique to every individual. So this idea that we have replaceable pastors. Uh, replaceable small group leaders, replaceable fellowships, replaceable things. We're not building anything permanent is not going to build attachments. So Mm -hmm. what is there about you that I'm going to attach to that becomes permanent? Uh, uh, And to do that, we would look at even our traditions, you know, like make a spiritual family tree. What are all of the things that you have that have formed who you are as a church, as a group, as a family, and how did they build in, what good things did they build in you that you'd been appreciating in all this mm-hmm. time? And so going through the, the ways in which uh, attachments are built, you know, how are we going to uh, 
we're looking for people who are glad to be with us. Yeah. So how are we going to do that since almost every culture uh, has prohibitions about who you can smile at and when and how? And uh, because if you just go about smiling at anybody, you attract predators, something fierce. Yeah. And so, again, working through these characteristics of um, attachment, the one that I'm doing right now with my small group here um, is that good attachments stretch you slightly uh, mm -hmm. to grow, which means you don't allow people to develop and protect a comfort zone mm -hmm. uh, as sort of their final uh, you know, criterion because most of the churches that last at yep. least a generation have created a comfort zone and then if you don't fit that comfort zone you're you're out of here and so uh, i'm not sure that the people particularly enjoy it my small group but <laughs> i'm 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 frequently stretching them out of their comfort zone and i'm saying we're a kind of people that do that and so yeah. take those 12 characteristics you know i recommend the the book i think it's a good one uh, <laughs> it is and, a good one uh, based on the brain science and then look for those in the bible and i think they're all there too yeah yeah i agree i think that's good and i love that you're actually pushing people out of your comfort zone to to move forward a little bit and i think it's a necessary uh next step anything else uh before i have a couple really quick questions at the end uh but anything else in escaping enemy mode that you we you want the audience to to know and understand to move forward. Yeah, it's sort of like a um, huge vision, uh, unrealistic in one sense. <laughs> but Christians are currently one out of five people on the planet. Yeah. So if we were actually to uh, learn to uh, love our enemies, uh, it would only mean about four enemies for each of us. Uh, and we could pretty much cover the planet. And at the moment, um, people don't think of doing it because they think it's impossible. Yeah, it's like, oh, that's a that's an ideal. It'll never happen. Yeah. But if you you can actually teach your brain to do that, um, that would be very very good. And going back to a question you asked a long time ago, and we never answered, uh, what do you do when people are in enemy mode? Yeah. Well, the best thing to do, since most of them are going to be part of your everyday life anyway, is to make it a topic we can talk about. So yeah. if uh, I give people permission to tell me, well, I'm in, the, I think you might be in enemy mode. Yeah. Um, now, if you do that just to make me lose, like you're in enemy <laughs> mode now, uh, that's going to be both of us are in enemy mode. But if I do that, like you asked me to remind you when you might be in enemy mode, and I think that might be going on. Um, mm. So can we uh, just get God's presence before we go forward? Uh, mm. That simple one step would start us building something that would be contagious, uh, that people around us would go like, how did you get out of that fight? Yeah, uh, I go, well, let me teach you how to do it. It's, uh, you know, it these things are not as uh, insurmountable as uh, they at first appear. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree. We've had, we've had things and relationships fall apart. Things fall apart because we didn't know how to get out of enemy mode. Um, and so even that step of being able to talk about enemy mode is so mm -hmm. very helpful. 
Yeah. The brain is responds almost the same to knowing a solution as it does to knowing there is a solution. So mm. if your brain knows this can be solved, it sits about trying to learn and figure it out. And if we had all of our, our brains doing that, we'd be in better shape. Yes. So, so these two, uh, two questions. One, if you could go back to your 21 year old self, what advice would you give? Hmm. Um, well, the things that um, I'd give myself as advice is uh, don't be such a solo artist. You know, I, I was still really into the individualism. Like I'm, I'm going to have to figure out how to do this all on my own. Um, and I was given that advice at that, that age, you know, do this part of the church. One of uh, my professors at Bible school said, Jim, the last thing the world needs is another church. So why don't you come to our church and, and teach us what you think Christians should be like, and we'll try and do it. Hmm. Um, and uh, I think I should have paid more attention to that. Now, I actually hmm. tried it, and it was a wonderful experience, hmm. but I didn't seem nearly as important as it now does. Hmm. That's good. Anything you've been reading or watching lately you could recommend? Um, well, I'm not watching anything. Um, that's good. Don't, don't, uh, part of it is cause I live up here in the Rocky mountains where you can't really get a signal and we don't even have cable up here. So, uh, you know, it, it sounds a little more, uh, dedicated than I, than might actually be. Um, yeah, I'm actually reading the books by, uh, Ed Corey right now. He's mm -hmm. got, uh, becoming a face of grace, uh, Beyond Becoming and The Weight of Leadership, three, it's a trilogy he put together. Uh, and it's how do we see in each other uh, and let my face uh, reflect the, the face of Jesus to you while, when we're interacting in real mm -hmm. church time, yeah. real family time and stuff like that. And then The Weight of Leadership is how do you avoid becoming a people-pleasing, codependent person who's now just, you know, trying to make everybody happy instead of represent Jesus. So those books I'm finding quite inspiring right now. Mm, that's great. How can people connect uh, with your book, what you're doing, Life Model Works, um, whatever you want to uh, connect people to? Yeah, well, I'll give you two websites. One is escapingenemymode.com. Uh, we'll take you to uh, a study guide. I think it's like over 40 pages wow. uh, for it. Um, that you know, if you want to work through the the material as part of your small group, something like that. It's it's not designed specifically for Christian small groups. We might eventually let, add one of those, but uh, we're actually trying to have a Christian impact on the world here. Yeah, that's good. So this um, this is kind of fun, and uh, the other is lifemodelworks.org, uh, org, and that's where you can get more broad. Uh, information on the stuff that we're up to. Uh, yeah, it's fun to be part of a, a team that's trying to make this stuff work and it doesn't always work on the first try. So it's good to have some other people to help you figure out why that didn't run <laughs> as well as it sounded. Well, we've uh, definitely been impacted by Life Model Works and the things that you have written and done, especially here uh, at All Nations, where my wife and I co-lead to All Nations Kansas City. But uh, a lot of people have found uh, your work very 
uh, very, very valuable and has actually helped us move forward in relationships, uh, move forward with joy uh, and find a place uh, where we could actually attach to God and attach to one another. So I want to thank you for that and thank you for your team uh, as they're working hard to to really put this out there so that we can engage it, uh, start to live into it um, and walk with one another uh, over the long haul and have a good journey. So I appreciate that. Um, you know, in many ways, I think of myself sort of like a dietitian that tells you what should be the nutritional value in your food. Yeah. But, uh, you know, you probably wouldn't eat it or serve other, get other people to eat it until you actually spice it up and make it, uh, you know, culturally relevant. And yeah. so uh, while we might give you the basics, you know, like here's, here's what needs to be in your diet. I really appreciate people like you that are saying, okay, well, how will we make this edible? You know, yeah. how will we serve this up? So people will come and actually like the meal. And so uh, glad to have you on the team. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jim. It was a pleasure talking to you. And I just, uh, yeah, I pray that we could all escape enemy mode. We could refriend people and we could learn how to love our enemies. That'd be good for us and the world needs it. Thanks. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you want to see more episodes like this, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron of the show. You can help us produce more episodes so that we can see the body of Christ look more like Jesus. If you become a patron on patreon.com slash shifting culture, uh, you will get early access to episodes. You will get episode guides. You will get bonus shows, hopefully, and more. So go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron. Also leave a rating and review on Apple podcasts. Uh, it really helps us out and helps us find new listeners to the show and just go and share this podcast with your friends, your family, your network, people that you think would enjoy it as well. Thank you again for listening to the show. I hope you have a great week.